you'll find out who I am later, if you don't already know. Um, but I will start by thanking uh, Judy Cooper, if I can figure out where she's uh, sitting. She's in the hallway. I'm thanking Judy, who can't quite hear me. Wave Judy to the crowd. Um, Judy has, has uh, allowed me to, to speak in this library three times, the last uh, three books that I have had, um, always in this lovely room. And I want to thank her very much and, and the, the library's hospitality. Um, I will, as, as I did last time, try to steal the posters that she has downstairs in the, the front window because they are amazing. And uh, before we say anything more about me, we have Terry Gurley, Gurley um, on acoustic guitar and Tobias Hurwitz. And you'll hear more about who they are later if you don't already know. But uh, I turn that over to them. Thanks, Gary. We're so happy to be here tonight in the Egg Round Poe room. We're going to play you guys a couple of songs and then uh, move on with the... Uh, the, the evening. So um, this is Terry Gorley. She's going to sing some Rolling Stones for a start for you.
Tobias. Um, I think Tobias is going to play us one more song. Um, you will hear more about me, and, and I'll read a little from this here book and so forth. But I want to just right now call your attention to one thing, which is the title of the book, Guitar Zero. It's a lie, because the, the second meaning of the book, besides the obvious allusion to a video game that I will come back to later, is that I had zero talent at the beginning. But in fact, I had negative talent. But it just didn't, it didn't ring to say guitar negative three. Um, we are now going to see the opposite of that, the opposite of zero being infinity. Ladies and gentlemen, Tobias Hurwitz, Guitar Infinity. Um, 
you're wondering how Tobias got this gig, since obviously his skills are a little slow. And uh, <laughs> um, You'll find out even more in a minute about why he got this gig, but I just want to point out one factoid about him. This is a true story. There is an invention called the shredometer, and what he was doing, some people might call shredding. He was playing so fast. So the shredometer measures how many beats per minute you can play in an accurate fashion. The man who holds the patent for that shredometer is Tobias Hurwitz. <laughs> Give it up for Tobias. Thank you, Gary. It's certainly an honor to be here. Um, and, you know, it's great because Gary started out absolute zero on guitar as a 38-year-old guy. And then he's like, well, what's it going to be like to, um, to learn this instrument from the ground up? And being a, a psychologist and a distinguished scientist, well, he turned this into a project of writing a book. And, well, he's all over the place, as you all know. Here's People Magazine with Gary Marcus in it. Give it up. Um, and Jimi Hendrix, not to mention Jimi Hendrix. Um, Gary's been all over the place getting more than his 15 minutes, I suppose, maybe his hour and a half or something, and he's been kind enough to share it with us. So here amongst all these quaint and curious volumes of Forgotten Lure, we have a brand new one, Guitar Zero. And um, I read it very recently. It's a great book. So you guys ought to get a copy yourself and uh, learn a lot about you know, what it's like to think about playing guitar and what the brain does while you're playing guitar and learning guitar. But without further ado, I give you Gary Marcus, the man of the hour. Coming to Baltimore is always special for me. There are a few people in this room that have come to all of my book readings in Baltimore. Um, notably my mom, but also many childhood friends. <laughs> and this event tonight is really even more special than any event in Baltimore. As most of you know, I'm from Baltimore. I grew up here. I went to Barclay Elementary School. I went to Roland Park. I went to City before leaving a little early for college. Um, that's a story for another day. But um, it's always a great thing to be uh, here in Baltimore. But today is even more special because a lot of the events in this book actually took place in Baltimore. Uh, and that's part of why Tobias and Terry, who just uh, is hiding over there, are here. Um, I usually read from the book. I'm not even sure I'm going to read from the book today. Um, but I'm going to start with a story completely improvised, which is to say that um, I had a what I called a tri-mitzvah birthday party um, <laughs> on my 39th birthday. And Michael Ratzik, who I don't think is in the house, um, uh, Michael Ratzik mentioned that he knew about this camp where kids learn to play. I guess I told him that I had just started. I knew he was a guitarist. I knew, I knew his dad. I used to juggle with his dad. I don't know if he's in the house. Um, and so I, I knew that Michael was a guitarist. And I told him that I had just taken up guitar and that I was pretty into it. And I realized at that point, by the time of my trimester party, at which point I'd been playing guitar for about six months, that I really wanted to be serious about it, that I really wanted to learn to play, and that I wasn't going to be able to do it playing 10 minutes a week or something like that. And I study language acquisition for a living, and one of the things everybody knows about language is you can't learn it unless you go to the country, right? Immersion is the best way to learn a language, and obviously the best way to learn an instrument is also immersion. And so I was taking it pretty seriously. And at six months, I had actually kind of already decided I was going to write a book about um, the adventure, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to give myself the excuse to spend as much time on it as I was. <laughs> People are always asking, did your book come first or the guitar? The guitar totally came first. Um, I guess I'll digress and come back to Tobias. The other meaning of the title is, of course, Guitar Hero, or the other play on words, aside from Ground Zero. Um, and there's a video game that everyone under 40 probably has played, and older people might be scratching their heads. It's a really dumb video game. The idea in this video game is you're supposed to be Keith Richards or something like that. You've got a plastic guitar that has five colored buttons and five colored dots fall from the screen. It's not even like Tetris where there's like geometry and you have to rotate something and use your brain. All you have to do in this video game is when the red dot gets to the bottom of the screen, you press the red button. When the blue get dot gets to the bottom, you press the blue button. It's a really idiotic game. And it was also way too hard for me. I have a, some of you know I have a PhD from MIT. I could not figure out this game for the life of me when I first played. What happens is if you play the note at the wrong time, the audience boos. And nobody likes to hear, nobody likes to be booed, right? But it gets worse because they boo louder if you miss another note, and louder and louder. And then in what has got to be one of the least motivating things that I've ever seen in a video game, eventually the whole, there's like a stage, and the whole stage empties, the audience empties, and the word fail comes up in giant letters. 
I know this from personal experience. Okay, so I bought this game because I wanted to become musical. I've always wanted to be musical. I always listened to a lot of music. I always spent all of my disposable income on CDs and when I got more money on fancy audio equipment. I was always pretty passionate about music. My mom always played a lot of um, rock and, and uh, sort of classic rock kind of music. My dad played classical. I was always surrounded by music, but I thought that I couldn't play it. And a couple of times I made attempts. The first one was a um, recorder teacher in Charles Village, whose name I luckily don't know. Um, and she rightly assessed when I first tried to play that I had some limitations in my musical ability. She, she, um, I, the, the first assignment was to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, and I had not gotten the memo that different notes have different durations, and, and I was um, really not very clear on the concept. And rather than doing what a good teacher would have done, which would be say, okay, let's put Mary on, Had a Little Lamb on the side, and let's just work with quarter notes and eighth notes. We have a very good music teacher in this room. Um, and a good music teacher would have done that, but a bad music teacher would simply give you the diagnosis and not the cure. <laughs> she didn't even really do that. She didn't really give the diagnosis. She just gave the bottom line, which was she said, rightly, I think, that my talents lay elsewhere, which was true, um, but not the right thing for a teacher to have done. A teacher should have encouraged me. But So I had a series of experiments, experiences like that. Um, another one that I remember very vividly was when I was in graduate school. Um, the Macintosh Plus had just come out, or maybe it was the Mac 2. And they sold this thing you could hook up to your Macintosh called the Miracle Piano. It was like a typing tutor, but with a piano. And I made it through five lessons, no problem. But on the sixth lesson, you had to play the notes at the right time. And, I have discovered that the timing is, is, is a challenge for me, and so there were no miracles from the miracle piano for me. There were several ex uh, experiences like that. Um, there was also a drama camp uh, in Baltimore that, that turned out to be a um, music camp, and nobody gave me the memo. And um, when I failed the audition, they had to write a part for me that was a non-singing part. Um, so m many things in Baltimore, many bad memories, but mostly good memories in this town, but not musically. Um, so. Then this game, Guitar Hero, came out, and a friend of mine, actually a fellow professor, said, you've got to play this game. It's really fun. And then I told you it really wasn't any fun for me. Um, it was quite torturous. And so I put it in the closet. I was done with this stupid game. Um, but I, I went through this brief period after I got tenure where I was playing video games. The Nintendo Wii came out, and I was sort of curious as a, as a kind of cognitive scientist about the skill learning and the user interface, or at least I told myself stuff like that. Um, and then my wife, she went off to Canada to visit some friends, and they had bought a similar game uh, that was called Rock Band. And the only difference was there were drums, and, and you could sing, too. And she got really into it, because my wife actually has musical talent. And so her friends had been playing for like six months, not really getting anywhere. And she sat down at the drums, which she had never played before. My wife sat down at the drums, and she was great at it. And so she loved it. She told me about it. And she came back to New York. And because I didn't want to seem like such a loser, a college professor at home by himself playing video games, I was like, all right, if she'll play that one, I'm going to get at the Guitar Hero. And so I did. And she actually helped me get through that first song, Slow Ride. I did an interview on NPR, and they read that part of the book, and they played it for me. And it sort of made me shake, because it was so torturous the first time. But Athena got me through Slow Ride. And then I started playing. I got through most of the songs on the easy level. It took a while. My mom reminds me of how I had no coordination whatsoever when I was a child and finally learned to catch a baseball by throwing a tennis ball against her stairs every day. So I knew all the way going back to when I was like 10 years old that if I really applied myself, I might get wear on, on some kind of skill. So I made it through beginner level and then I made it through medium level. And then I said, this is stupid. If I can spend this much effort learning to play the plastic guitar, maybe I can try the real thing. And that, that was sort of the, the gateway drug to it all. The, the reverb here is really cranked up, isn't it? So, that's right, is the Excel late again? So, so that, that brings me back to, to my story. Um, Michael Ratzik told me about this camp, and I just thought this was genius because I'm a cognitive development person. I want to know what are the differences between kids and adults. And so I started writing him first gentle letters, and then I started begging outright and, and trying to, to, to see if I could sit in on this camp. And eventually, I don't know, something had to be cleared. The camp is called Day Jams, and maybe Mission Control had to you know, decide was it going to be safe to let a 40-year-old man among, among these young kids. I don't know. <laughs> they did background checks. I don't know exactly the story. Maybe Tobias will tell us. Um, later, after we get him drunk enough, I don't know. But eventually, 
I got a phone call from Tobias, and I was really excited, not just because of the camp, but he had a book called The Total Rock Guitarist that I knew and really liked. I was like, the Tobias Hurwitz? I think I didn't even know who the director was. And then suddenly, there he was. He was like, he sent me an e email and said, call me. So I called him up, and I, I won't forget this conversation anytime soon. He said, you didn't come to the camp, but if you really want to understand what the camp is about, you need to be in a band. And at this point, I was not ready to be live on stage or anything like that. And then it got worse from there. He said, of course, if you want to be in a band, remember, I was playing guitar. He said, you got to learn to play bass, because there are never enough bass players in a band. I hung up the phone, went to Amazon.com, and started shopping online for basses the instant that um, he told me this. I played bass before once, once in college for about five minutes. A friend tried to teach me Psycho Killer a friend that I just saw for the first time in 20 years. And I couldn't play it because, again, I didn't understand about duration. I was like, I see that it's, you know, these seven notes, but what is the relate? I didn't even understand what I didn't understand. But anyway, Tobias persuaded me to bring a bass, and I started practicing the, the opening lick to Another One Bites the Dust. And I didn't know if I was going to audition or how this was going to work or if any of the kids were going to let me into the band. And he didn't know either, but I came down to Baltimore. I stayed at my mom's house. It was a little bit like Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, except this time I was going to be the, the, the student instead of the professor. The camp was at Roland Park Country School, um, which was a school that I um, often admired in a sort of funny way from afar, because I was a boy and it was an all-girls school across the street from my, my school, from Roland Park. So, so I show up and talk to De Tobias a little, discovered that he looked like a rock star, which I did not realize at that point. Um, and Tobias welcomed me, but he said, you know, the really important thing here, if you're going to be in a band, is the kids have to want you to be in the band. I can't just say, you know, you guys, you're going to have to work with this guy. You're stuck with this old man who doesn't know how to play bass. I don't think that would have been decent. And so, and then he said, you know, we have whatever, 50 kids here, and they have to be assigned to 10 bands. And it was like the most anxious thing that I had experienced for a long time. I knew that they weren't going to pick me in the beginning. I was going to have to wait for all that to happen. And then I was thinking of this song, uh, by Christine Lavin, where she describes her, her childhood softball experience. And, and I stole this line for the book. I, I um, befriended her, or trying to befriend her on Facebook. She tweeted my story the other day. Very exciting. But she says in this, in this song, pick me, pick me, pick me. And I remember that feeling from, from grade school, wanting to be on the kickball team, not usually getting chosen. And so there I was, waiting to see if I could be in a band. And eventually, all of the bands were organized. And Tobias brought me around. He brought me to Michael Raitzik's room. And there were a couple of kids there. And he said, will you have me in the band? And one of those kids is Greer. <laughs> Give out a big shout for Greer. <laughs> Greer, who had the decency to allow me to play in my first band. Did you notice your bass teacher, Jamie I did not see. Jamie, where are you? Wave. You're hiding. There, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie is, is in the book. He, um, he has a line there about telling me uh, that perhaps I should use more fingers than my thumb, which is um, quite accurate. Yeah, how, did, how did he put it? He sort of said, I could play with just my thumb and never quite finish the sentence. Um, and the implications were very clear. Hello, Jamie. Um, I'm only going to play with my thumb tonight because I'm nervous, but I have learned a little bit of finger style that you won't see tonight. Um, Students don't always learn lessons, their lessons, and it's not always their teacher's fault. So, um, so Greer and Ryan and Riley and Sarah, who could not be here tonight, um, all graciously allowed me to be in the band. And then the deal was that God superimposed a soundtrack. Now arriving, platform 18, platform 19, 20. Um, then the deal at this camp is on Monday, you get, if you're lucky, you get chosen for a band. I guess all of the, the, the paying customers, the kids all get to be in some band. There was more doubt about whether I was going to be in one. But so I, I was in a band, and the deal is by Friday, you, got, you go up on stage. You perform your, a song that you have written in the course of those five days, and you do it live. And the scary part is that all the kids bring all their parents. Is Greer's dad here? the man that we officially refer to as, it's a long story, but Greer's dad was presumably there. So all the parents were going to come out. You're going to have to play a song. And my parents were coming too. A big hand to my mom, who has come to all these readings. 
So that week was one of the tenser weeks of my life. I also took t singing lessons with Terry that week, who helped me with, with a little help from my friends, which uh, I later recorded with uh, a ukulele backing, backing section and these two fine folks. You can, you can hear it on the web. So look for Beatles. And the song I chose was With a Little Help from My Friends, because I needed a lot of help from my friends. First time I sang it, I sang it live with Amy, who's here tonight. Give her a big hand for, for um, coaching me through. So in addition to taking singing lessons, which um, was also not my talent, and learning to play bass, which was a new instrument, um, and trying to put together a song, I was like taking notes copiously, because I figured this would all figure into the book somewhere. And I was trying to help the kids arrange the song, because I found that was the only thing I was really good at. Um, I couldn't play as fast as they could, but I could make suggestions about um, how the song might be put together and so forth. There are a lot of passages from this book that I read on the different stops on the road. This is actually kind of like a rock tour or something like that. Um, but I'll let you read the book later. But I want to read uh, one passage in particular because it's especially meaningful uh, for me. Um, and this is The Last Night at the Camp, Day Jams, run by Tobias Hurwitz. So, uh, and he figures uh, in, in the, this scene, at long last, the audience was seated, sound checks were complete, and Tobias took the stage introducing himself as camp director and making some mercif mercifully brief remarks about the camp itself. And I say mercifully brief because I was terrified. The longer he went on, the more nervous I would have been. I actually quote one of my bandmates as saying something about the nervouser he became, and I, I, I understood uh, what he meant. Then he announced our band, which was called Rush Hour. And I, it's a very ironic title because I was the only one in the band who was old enough to have a driver's license. But <laughs> I didn't choose the name. But that's what we were called, Rush Hour. And the curtains opened. So as the only person in our band with experience speaking in front of a crowd, that, that part I could handle, I earned the right and responsibility of introducing the band. Ladies and gentlemen, I shouted in my best P.T. Barnum voice, if you check your watches, you will see that it is 5 p.m., and that means it's time for rush hour. And at least three or four people in the audience applauded and, and realized that was their cue. And that was Greer's cue. Now, Day Jams is not a classical music camp. I, I did not inform you, but um, after he played that, and I'll, I'll just go back to the reading. We're off. He plays a few measures of his elegant classical piece, and then, all according to plan, and this is the part that I actually got to contribute to, Riley bursts in with eight loud beats on his drum. Beat nine comes. Riley's cymbal is right on time, and the rest of us join in. The, the preceding chapter is about all the times in which we were total train wrecks as a band, and not everything came in time. So it was very exciting to actually hit it all. Um, right on time, the rest of us join in twice through the verses, then everybody else drops out, and then it was my turn to play my little bass fill, which you could hear on NPR the other day. Um, equally terrifying. Two more verses, and then it's on to our menacing chorus. Greer's piano solo, accompanied only by Riley on his softly hit cymbals, is next. And then Ryan joins in for a verse. At the start of the next verse, Sarah, who is also a very beginner like me, and I return together. Twice more through the verse, twice more through the chorus, a drum solo for Riley, who winds up and holds his sticks high to signal our big finish. Everyone hits a loud G chord, and we are done. Everything had gone according to plan. We got thundering round of applause. We were a real rock band now. And just one more paragraph, and then we'll do something different. When the concert ends, I hunt out my bandmates. And we pose for band pictures. On the way out, I feel a particular mixture of elation and sadness that I haven't felt since college graduation. And Francis will know that I also felt that exact same feeling at the end of CTY. There are probably several CTY people here. It's the feeling that I felt after American Pie on the last day of CTY. You met all these wonderful friends, and now you have to go home. I'm often among, I continued, the first... I'm often among the first people to leave social events, but today I'm the last. I keep my own parents waiting as I say goodbye to the greatest bunch of 11-year-olds I've ever known. Thank you, Greer.
We're playing that Steve Lewis thing? We're going to play Steve Lewis. Okay. We're going to let Amy start because she's got the quiet. Okay. So oh, that's quite all right. I'll, I'll let you guys do your thing. If you wanna, I can put a mic on that thing if you want. Now. Nah. Right there. turn on the microphone. And now I will take your questions about uh, how to learn to play guitar or the science of music or how Greer got to be such a good keyboard player or anything you like. Jamie, you get the first question. You mentioned talent in the book and what that plays. Some people perceive that as inherent talent. And where does that come from in your brain? That's the hardest thing to be So. There's this idea out there that with 10,000 hours of practice, anybody can be great at anything. A lot of books, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers kind of makes that case, the talent code and talent is overrated. I'm afraid that those books are a lie. <laughs> there is some truth in it, but not as much as I think um, readers would like to believe. So the research that those books are based on is all by a friend of mine, Anders Ericsson. I think it's very good research. And what that research shows is if you put in 10,000 hours of practice, it's really going to help. But it does not show that if you put 10,000 hours in, you're going to be the Beatles. So 
there are a couple things wrong with the 10,000 hours. The first is actually pointed out by Anders Ericsson himself, which is the kind of practice that you have, and I am going to come back to talent, the kind of practice that you have matters. So there's the kind of practice that a lot of guitarists put in where they just keep playing the same stuff they know after a certain point. They reach a plateau. They don't really get any better anymore. They're not really trying to figure out what are they not good at to improve it. So Ericsson calls this deliberate practice. I call it targeting your weaknesses. So mine was obviously rhythm, as James Wells knows, but won't tell because he's too much of a gentleman. But rhythm was obviously my, my weak point. And so a lot of my practice involved doing things like playing with a drum machine. Eventually, I wrote an iPhone app called Chatternome. It's, I think, free on the um, app store. And it counts the beats out loud. So it goes one and two and three and so forth. And that helped me to internalize at least some sense of rhythm, as I hope you just saw now. Don't, don't judge if you disagree. Um, so you need the right kind of practice. 10,000 hours of any old practice won't do. But then it also depends what you're trying to learn. So if you wanted to be an expert in tic-tac-toe, it might you know, take an afternoon or maybe a week if you're slow about it. Um, if you want to play guitar, it's going to take a lot longer. It's a really complicated instrument. There's a lot of stuff about harmony, about lead lines. In some ways, the, the guitar is one of the richest instruments. It's also torturous in certain ways. Like the strings aren't all tuned in the same way. Um, so a lot of the book is actually about like what are the mental challenges that go into it. So um, certain skills are going to be harder. And then the last thing is talent. Well, what is talent? Talent is about genetics. So there's no, or I suspect there is no single gene in, in, in our genomes that is the music gene. My day job is about language, and there certainly hasn't been any language gene discovered yet. There are newspaper stories say stuff like that. But what we really have is a gene that's involved in language, that if it's mutated, causes problems for language. But that gene is also has some role in the lungs, and chimpanzees have it and don't talk, and so forth. So if you look at how biology works, every gene has a lot of different jobs, or almost every gene has a lot of different jobs. So there's no specific music gene per se. But there are a lot of genes that probably have something to do with music. So there are genes that have to do with how well you can detect pitch, your sense of time, which I was not blessed with, um, with your sense of the overall structure, maybe you know, of structure of abstraction in general. So maybe some of my analytic skills that allow me to understand something new, that might have helped a little bit. But there are a lot of different genes that go into being able to play music. If you look at the people that are very best, they probably have all of those genes and a lot of practice. So here's my slightly less uplifting take on the Malcolm Gladwell kind of thing, which is not that if you play 10,000 hours, you're going to be a genius, but that if you play 10 or maybe even one, you can be awfully good at something and really enjoy it. You can probably tell how much fun I had playing here. Be even more fun if I wasn't you know, having a little bit of stage fright with all of you here um, playing in the privacy of my home. But I find it amazing to be able to play. I don't, I don't play like Jimi Hendrix. I don't even play like Tobias. Um, but... Uh, it's a fantastic feeling. Did you want to add something there? Um, if you wear tight jeans, does that help? <laughs> <laughs> the tighter, the better. T Tobias is actually quoted in the book in a chapter that's about talent, but that, as it turns out, is not the quote that made it into the final edit. Absolutely. So the question is about age and learning language and learning music. So there are really two questions there. One is what is the relation between learning language and learning music? And the other is about where age fits into all of this. So one of the reasons I wrote the book is because something that I always believed to be true turned out not to be. And the thing that I always believed to be true that turned out not to be was that you couldn't learn things later in life. So when I was trained in graduate school, we talked a lot about this idea of a critical period. The idea was you had to learn something, say, by the time you were three or by the time you were 16. So you could sort of imagine, you know, you're, you're, you reach puberty, you start thinking about sex, you'll never learn anything again. Um, that was kind of the popular wisdom, you know, no 17-year-old learn, learns a language, uh, new language natively. But in the, the 90s and early 2000s, people started documenting pretty nicely some cases of people that did actually learn new languages as adults natively. It's not something everybody can do. Again, talent probably enters into it. But we did find that there were some such people. And then there are a lot of animal studies that are relevant. So the ideal study would be one where you have a kid who practices for 10,000 hours and an adult who practices 10,000 hours and you compare them. Um, what I thought when I wrote the book was that it would be hard to find the adults who'd actually put in the 10,000 hours because most 
adults have other responsibilities. It's hard for them to put in that much time. They have rent to pay, they have kids to take care of, or parents to take care of. Um, so the whole conceit of the book was that I needed to be my own guinea pig to see what the 10,000 hours would be like. One of the amazing things about this book tour is I found out there are actually a whole lot of other adults of all ages, people in their 70s that really are willing to put the 10,000 hours. So we might do the right study yet. But at the time, I was looking at animal studies, and the animal studies also were kind of dissolving. It used to be that we thought that there were critical periods and you're done. One of the most famous studies with, was with owls. It was a kind of virtual reality study. It's before computers were as cheap as they are today. So um, the Stanford biologist who did it, Eric Knudsen, used prisms. He would put a prism in front of the eyes of an owl, and the owl had to calibrate what it hears with what it sees. And he put in a prism that distorted the visual field by 23 degrees. And what he found was the young owls could learn this, no sweat, and the old owls couldn't do it. And so this became kind of like the textbook example of a critical period. But then later, he himself did a great experiment, which is he said, well, what if we made the adults take it slow? And so he had put in smaller prisms. He put three degrees of prism the first day, and maybe a week later, six degrees, and then nine degrees, and 12, and so forth. Um, the technical term was doing it incrementally. And when those owls did it incrementally, the older owls could actually learn the same things as younger owls. So um, that became kind of the rallying cry for the book. If the owls can do it, maybe I can too. <laughs> And before I bought Tobias, a total rock uh, guitarist, I bought another book called Crash Course Acoustic Guitar. And that like really broke things down into these really bite-sized steps. And I think if you're an adult taking on something new, that's one of the things you want to do. The other thing is to give yourself slack. So I think kids are ready to just sit there and play the riff. They don't really care if it sounds like it's on the record. And adults are much more self-censoring. If you can allow yourself that slack, I think you have a chance as an adult. Going back to the other part of your question, a relation between language and music. I actually have a whole chapter about it. Um, there are a lot of things that they share. So for example, they're both what a linguist would call compositional um, or hierarchical. So you have little bits and pieces that you make into bigger things. So in language, I'm taking words and putting them into sentences that turn into paragraphs uh, in discourses that you wish would stop. And in music, you take individual notes, you make motifs, and you put them together into movements and song or you know, uh, symphonies. So music and language share that. But lots of things, as, as the linguist Ray Jackendorf point, pointed out, share that too. So like making a cup of coffee can actually be broken down into lots of little steps. So there's a lot of things music shares with language. There's some that don't. I actually end the chapter by talking about Rhapsody in Blue. How many people know that piece? I feel like I'm a teacher. Almost everybody knows that piece. Um, it starts with this amazing slide. I think it's on clarinet. Someone here can correct me if I'm wrong. And there's actually an academic article about that slide, like the physics of it and how it works. And I give the reference in, in the book. And the point that I make there is that you know, no matter what words you have, there's some things you can't capture in music. I actually quote, the, one of the reasons I use that passage, aside from the fact that I love that song, is that Alex Ross wrote this great um, book about music. He's a New Yorker uh, music critic. And I think the book's called The Rest is Noise. And he describes that passage. And I quote it in the book. And it's a brilliant passage. And if you already know the song, you can feel it. You can hear the song. But if you didn't already, it would be like, well, what language is this person speaking about? So there are lots of things you can do in music that you can't do in language and vice versa. And I'll take another question over here. Is that Jerry? Hey, Jerry. I hope you brought your harmonica. Well, I did, but <laughs> 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 the, the thing is, um, you know, under the rubric, say, of musical uh, literacy, in this country, in some countries, kids learn how to read music when they start to learn how to read their language. And that makes a big difference, because then they can sight read. I, I would not say the United States has the strongest music education um, <laughs> system in the world. I actually don't especially necessarily advocate learning sheet music. I think that a lot of blind musicians can't read sheet music. A lot of um, great rock stars like Paul McCartney don't read sheet music. Um, in my own case, I, I learned a little bit, but I read cheap music at sort of a first grade level. I would like to read it better. I aspire to eventually. But I, on this notion of working on your weaknesses, I figured if I couldn't get the rhythm down, there was no point in really reading the sheet music. So I'll get there eventually, I hope. Um, but you can get a long way without it. I think in the classical conservatory tradition, it's a sort of necessity, and it turns a lot of people off. But especially if you want to learn to improvise in a blues band with all your best friends, you don't necessarily have to play sheet music. Another question. It's a great question, the relation between math and music. So 
certainly there's a kind of relationship of analytical abilities. So um, people that are drawn to math are often drawn to music theory, which is basically the algebra of music. Um, there's also a lot of math in rhythm, so understanding the relations between eighth notes and sixteenth notes and so forth. Now, a deeper question is whether playing music makes you better at math or whether being good at math makes you better at music. There's a nice correlation, but as a cognitive psychologist, I have to warn you that correlation doesn't mean causation. We don't really know whether the one is causing the other. I think at the very least, music, not uniquely, but music is a very good way to teach self-discipline. So I actually learned it by throwing the ball against the steps and learning how to catch. And then later I learned to unicycle. And, and that was a similar experience where every day for a month, you know, I start at the beginning, I couldn't do it. And, and by the end, I could do it. I think you can get that from music too, the sense of starting somewhere, not being able to do it, and eventually mastering it. And I think every child should have that experience. I don't know if it has to be with music. I think people would like for me to say that. Um, but I think music is a great way to have that experience. So at the very least, I think music teaches um, people about self-discipline, and that's very helpful. And it may well be that, for example, some of the analytic parts of the brain that go into music for some people um, are correlated uh, causally with, with the mathematical ability. I haven't gone too much to the back. I'll go here now. Uh, is there something you've uh, I have a line in the book about that. I say that the only thing that it sort of approaches is chess. And, and we have Dan Richmond here who used to be a chess master, I guess. Um, but not quite nearly master. Um, so I think chess is sort of a comparable degree of difficulty in general. But for me, music is harder. Um, I never got really good at chess because I was too lazy to learn the openings and stuff like that. Um, there are there are, must be harder things, but for me, Guitar was harder than a PhD. That's just me with the lack of talent, but it is true. Over on this side, I'll just go back and forth. I might know the particular study. So there have been a bunch of studies in recent years that suggest that um, becoming musical rewires the brain. I look at these studies and sort of giggle in a way, because anytime you learn anything, you have to rewire your brain. Now, it's interesting that music requires you to rewire a lot of your brain. And I, this is something I talk about in the book. You have to rewire the parts of the, some parts of the brain that are involved in emotion, so you can understand how different chord progressions resonate, for example, with people. Um, there's a whole technical side we call mus muscle memory, but is really in the somatosensor somatosensory cortex. There are things in your prefrontal cortex. All of these things have to be rewired in the course of music. But hopefully, right now, while you're sitting here, you're also doing a little bit of rewiring your brain while you're absorbing the things that, that I tell you. So there are these studies saying, you know, playing cello rewires the brain. And it's true. But it's also true that you know, playing baseball rewires the brain. So sometimes I think people make more of those studies than they should. Tobias, um, yeah, another wisecrack about my genes. So, so I'll take the second one first. How long does your brain grow? It actually grows throughout life. There used to be, uh, I mean, it depends how you count growth, but there are different things you might count in growth. So one is rewiring the connections between different neurons happens throughout life. A second thing is it used to say in all the textbooks that in human beings, and I guess in primates, there are no new neurons after birth or after age three. But it turned out to be sort of a number pulled out of a hat by a very famous Yale neuroscientist. And it wasn't true. There's a great article in The New Yorker about three or four years ago about a woman who I believe's name is Elizabeth Gould and how she overturned that myth. It turns out that there are new neurons in the adult human brain. They're mostly in the hippocampus, which is a particular place that has to do with things like spatial memories and so forth. But there's some new growth even in the adult brain. There's also some decay. Um, I don't want to tell you the bad news, but it's true. There's some decay, too. Um, the first part of the question, this is my brain decay. So, um, okay, so um, does perfect pitch, I mean, perfect pitch has a realization in the brain. Perfect pitch is one of the few things you really probably have to get early. It's not quite innate. So what perfect pitch really means is I hear a note and I can name it. Give me an E. Are you still, still alive there? So, some people, if they heard that note without the enormous hint that I just gave you, would say, aha, that's an E, and they wouldn't need any context. Other people, play, play me an F now. If they had heard the E, 
and didn't know what it was, and I said that's an E, then when they heard the F, they could work from there. So that's what's called relative pitch. Absolute pitch or perfect pitch is you just walk into a room, somebody plays the note, and you know from the number of cycles per second that that sound wave is radiating. You might not think about it that way, but you know the, what the note is. Something to realize, though, is the notes are different in different cultures. So nobody is actually born knowing that we call that an E because there are other cultures where it wouldn't even be an E. But it is the case that if you're going to learn that mapping between the frequencies, the sounds, and the names of the notes, you have to do that early in life. So if there's one place in music where there really is a critical period, it's there, is, is the absolute pitch. On the other hand, there are lots of musicians who don't have it. Some do. Michael Jackson had it. Barbara Streisand had it. But Duke Ellington didn't. He did perfectly fine. So it's not a necessity. Uh, over there. Um, what I know as a cognitive psychologist about how to make practice interesting is that the mind has a tendency to get bored. And one of the reasons that people stop is stop playing is they're doing the same thing over and over again and they don't feel like they're making progress and they get bored. So throughout my practice I was always trying to think of ways to mix things up so there was enough novelty, which is the other thing the brain craves, in order to keep myself interested. So one of the most useful things for that, for me anyway, is a drum machine where you can play different backing uh, kinds of tracks. And now there are all kinds of things on an iPhone um, where you have something like a full band that, you know, pre-recorded um, that you can practice along to. And if you keep changing what you're practicing to, what rhythms and so forth, that's one way to keep things interesting. Um, I think that some people also have a tendency to just throw themselves up a brick w against a brick wall over and over again. I think that's a bad idea. You're really stuck. Try something different. In music, and this is going to be true in other skills too, there are so many different things you can work on. Like keep a list. These are the seven things I need to do. I need to work on my rhythm. I want to learn these songs. I want to learn you know, this particular Latin rhythm. When you get stuck, try taking a different piece of it on a, on a different day. You have to come back to the stuff you're stuck on. But if you keep things interesting, you will fool yourself into keep practicing. The most important thing in learning an instrument and probably in any skill is keeping yourself motivated and not discouraged. There's also a chapter in the book about what makes a great teacher. And, um, it wasn't my recorder teacher. She's not featured. But um, what makes a great teacher is in part a teacher that knows how to motivate um, the students to keep going. I, I talk in particular about Michelle Horner, who's a Suzuki teacher in Brooklyn. I sat in on her classes with her, her six-year-old students. And she was totally upbeat. She knew all about stickers and stuff like that to keep the, the kids happy. But the best thing that she did, I thought, was to realize that if your student only practices in the classroom, never going to get anywhere. So you come in the classroom once a week, that's not enough to get, that's not the immersion that you need. So most of your practice is going to be at home. And so she's really big, as I think a lot of Suzuki teachers are, about having the parents come in for lessons. And a lot of the lessons for the parents, aside from teaching them how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which I tried to do with them, is about teaching the parents to keep the kids happy. So one of the things that will stick with me is she said, if your child makes a mistake, and everybody wants their kid to be perfect so they can get into Harvard, she says, if your child makes a mistake, never ever correct them until they've made that mistake at least three times. I think that's a really valuable lesson. Paul? I don't talk a lot. The question is about playing by ear. So I, I talk about a background to that, which is one of the things that's hard about making music is to be able to have that relative pitch. So there's a simple way in which we all do it. Can I get a low E and then a high E? Everybody in the room, or almost everybody in the room, can probably tell that one of those is different from another. But if you want to be a professional musician, you want to be able to know how different are they from another. So it's not good enough to say they're, you know, they're different. You need to be precise. I think about this like numbers. So Almost every mammal or every vertebrate knows what we call the approximate number system. I don't know if we have any experts in that here. There was some that might have come, but I don't think they're here tonight. Some people at Johns Hopkins are, are really expert on this. So um, there's an approximate number system that we share with a lot of animals. So I can put 30 jelly beans on, on the table here, and I can ask everybody in the room how many there are without giving the answer away again. And I'll get different answers. Some people say, I don't know, 25, and April will say 35, and, and we'll, we'll get different answers. But if we crowdsource it, on average, we'll be right. You know, 
all of our approximate answers will, will converge to being the right answer about what that number is. All the animals can do that, but only human beings have an exact number of the system. They can say, it's not just that it's 30-ish, you know, but I can sit there and I can count and I can tell you there are exactly 30 jelly beans. Other animals can't do that, except maybe with enormous amounts of training, and probably not. Well, for the beginner, it's just sort of approximate. It's, these two things are kind of far away. Now give me, I don't know, an E and an A or something like that. In the same octave as each other. But. If you're a musician, you have to know exactly how far apart those are. So to a first approximation, there are 12 categories. And you've got to know those 12 categories. And really, because the whole, if you want to go across the whole width of the piano keyboard, you have uh, seven octaves. Um, um, if you want to go across the whole keyboard, you really have to be able to do all of it, ideally. I mean, if you want to be able to play the Queen of the Night solo by ear, you've got to be able to go pretty far across the keyboard. So the prerequisite to being able to play by ear is to have a really good sense of relative pitch. And the popular wisdom is that, OK, lots of people don't have perfect pitch, but that we all have relative pitch. But we don't really all have relative pitch. Really having relative pitch means knowing exactly how far you are from some known reference point at all times. And the best musicians, all the jazz musicians, for example, um, have to be able to do that. Because playing by ear is you're knowing that it's these particular notes, not just it's a little bit higher, it's a little bit lower. Another question um, here. That's, that's not actually true. So exposure helps. Um, it also. So I think language and music are actually different. This is something that I've thought about throughout writing the book because, as I said, my day job is about studying language. And it's absolutely the case that every normal human being um, um, that doesn't have a hearing impairment or something like that um, learns language just fine. Um, and they don't need any training for it. They don't need correction from their parents and so forth. Music is not quite as robustly imprinted on the human genome. So there are lots of people that get by just fine in life without knowing any music. Maybe they don't have quite as happy life, but there are people like Sigmund Freud is a pretty well-known uh, person. Um, he hated music as far as people can tell. He certainly wasn't particularly <laughs> adept at playing it. Um, and not everybody learns to sing in tune. Um, Amy and Terry know about the challenges that I faced um, at age 38. But you know, lots of kids, um, when they're two years old, kind of they have this very approximate sense of pitch. They don't realize their exact notes to hit on and so forth. So music is not as natural an acquisition. And then the other piece of it is it may help to be Asian. We don't know this for sure, but the, there's a higher incidence of perfect pitch in China. But even there, even there, you can go to a conservatory in China, and I pick China for a reason. Mandarin Chinese, which is the most common language there, has a tonal system. So different words are differentiated by the tones. So speaking that language has to be as good a background as anybody's going to get. But even if you go to a conservatory there, where you're selecting people for their music ability, you're not just pulling people off the street, it's still only about 50%, which is way more than it's going to be in this room. But it shows that not everybody learns perfect pitch, even in a perfect environment. Uh, no, I already took one from Jerry. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. And Tobias gets special privileges since he let me go to the camp. Yes? Uh, I'm actually not Asian, but I am Axiom, so um, and the idea of, um, it's not really close to the Western style of music, mm -hmm. but you do have, okay, for example, I play guitar, but I have to play very often. But um, the, the reason I picked up guitar, and I picked up guitar at 22, is because I was hearing music. I was wondering about composers, if you had any, And what about them? I don't, I don't know exactly what you're asking. I certainly, among other things, interviewed um, composers. The one that I know the best at this point is Morton Sabotnik, who um, composed an album called Silver Apples, which was one of the first electronic music albums. It was a bestseller in, I guess, the late 60s. And he started his career as a clarinetist. And the reason he became a composer was he ran out of things to play. He was a classical clarinetist, and there's not that much what they call in that field literature. So he had played everything, and he was bored. And so he started getting into electronic music um, and into composition, not just electronic, because he wanted something new to do. And I think a lot of composers come from a background in playing piano more typically, and then they, they sort of they feel like they know that they want some a new musical challenge. There are probably some composers in the room as well, I imagine. Other questions? I'll take maybe two more. 
So, I mean, lots of things go on in the course of learning music. One of the things is everything gets easier. So one of the reasons that everything gets easier is the way that our brain is set up. So our brains are not like computer software. So if you have your Macintosh or your Windows machine, you can stick in a CD-ROM or download something from the internet in a program called an installer sets that piece of software up. And we don't have that for the brain. There's no you know, guitar installer, which I guess is good for me because you wouldn't have a book to buy. But um, I, I would buy it in a heartbeat if I could. Um, but we don't work that way. So the way that we learn is we put little pieces together into bigger pieces. And that applies to almost everything we do. So for example, if you want to learn the notes to a song, at first it's a little bit like a paint by numbers. The notes don't mean anything to you. First time you play Mary Had a Little Lamb, there's just a C and another C. I, don't, I still don't know the song. And then an E and a G or whatever it is. And they're just random to you. It's like memorizing a license plate as it goes by, right? But eventually those notes start to have meaning. You say, oh, I see, this is a riff on a C major scale. It's just that they've skipped the F note. And so once you can connect the new stuff with the old stuff, you're in business. The same way if I asked you to memorize a long set of digits and then you notice that the first three were 212 and you knew I was from New York, it would be easy. So eventually you learn this connects to a chord progression I already know or this connects um, to a scale I already know. And that's true for the motor side and the learning side. So a lot of what you're doing is what's called in the technical field proceduralization or automatization. And a lot of that is about taking little chunks and getting bigger chunks and bigger chunks and being able to put them together better. Um, I'll take one last question. Who's, OK. When a I think it's kind of a, it's almost a Zen question. I mean, I think it, it's a philosophical question. How do you get over the embarrassment? I guess there's two ways you get over it. One is you just learn to accept, and this is why I say it's sort of a Zen thing, you learn to accept that you're just not going to be as good as, as Tobias Hurwitz the first you know, 17 years you're playing, and that's just the way it is. Um, and the other thing, so you, so you learn to accept it, and you do get better. And as you get better, you feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, you know, each time that I play, I feel a little bit more comfortable playing in front of other people and so forth. And I think, you know, self-consciousness slowly recedes as you get more confident. The first time I gave a lecture uh, was in graduate school, like my first semester, or I guess it was my second semester in graduate school, and I thought it was absolutely terrifying. I was, like, nervous for weeks and so forth. And, you know, eventually I learned my stuff, and I became less afraid that people would decide that I was a fraud, and I became more comfortable talking in, in front of crowds. And um, nobody has booed me on this road trip so far, and so I'm feeling a little bit... <laughs> almost nobody. <laughs> until today, nobody had booed, and so my confidence was growing until today. So um, thank you very much. I'm going to say one more thing, um, which is we're going to do two more things. I'm going to sign books. You can buy them out there. I don't know that there are many left. Um, they may have book plates if they're not. Um, I'm sorry that I think we probably don't have enough for you tonight, but I'll sign as many as are there. Um, those that are personally known to the Marcus family might hook something up by the US Post Office if you don't get a copy of the book. Um, and I don't know if we've got anyone else from Day Jams, but we certainly have Jamie, who's a little bit older. Is Jamie still here? Did he uh, slide away? Um, and we may have some graduates from Day Jams. I don't know if anyone has come. And has, we have some Day Jam students. So anybody here who has an instrument, come on down. And we will, as they say, play out. You can go buy books while we jam up here, and I will sign them. Thank you all for coming. Baltimore rocks.